Hello there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of the storytelling family, where, in the heat of the summer, we cut loose and cut the crap, live on stage, stripped of notes and inhibitions. I'm your host, Jessica Holmes. Now, let's run with scissors. Hard-edged slice of life stories. The season finale of our summer season held on August 29th, 2016 at the Adults Only Visual Arts Collective. This is the featured act, with the real cutouts Dustin LaPrey, Patty O'Hara, and Ashton Smith. Because it's legit the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's late night stories. This is Dustin LaPrey! So we got a flashback to 2010. It's spring break, it's March. I just finished my senior thesis for Boise State University. It's called Useful Information. And the last poem is a multiplication table, okay? So it's uh, 1 through 12, 1 through 12. Each little box is a character. So it's 1 times 1 is one character, so it's the word I. 6 times 6, there's 36 characters. 12 times 12 is 144 characters in that big box at the bottom. I built the last poem with a number 2 pencil, some old school notebook paper, some Elmer's glue, and a pair of beautiful blue-handled scissors, like the most perfect scissors you'll ever find in your life. They fit my hand perfectly. They were so fucking sharp. They were just beautiful. I loved them. I had them in my pocket for three weeks straight, built this last poem. It was wonderful. So spring break happens. It's my last semester in college. I'd never been on a real spring break. I spent five years in junior college, three years in undergrad, three years in grad school, so it's 11 years, and I'm finally done. It's so excited. My two best friends are getting ready to go to Iraq. My other best friend's getting married in the fall. If we're ever going to do a spring break trip, this is the time. So we decided to go to Lake Havasu. So we pack a bag, and we hit the road. And I put my blue scissors in the bag because I've had them with me. Of course I need my blue scissors, and I'm going to need them. So we hit the road and we get to the jackpot and I get a fever. Not like a good fever, like an actual fever. And I'm in the back seat of the car and I'm in the Explorer, Timmy's Green Dragon. It's like a 96 Ford Explorer. And Levi here is riding shotgun. And I'm in the back behind Tim. And Tim's like six foot six, built like a brick shit house, just a big feller. And I'm behind him and I'm a, and I got a fever and I'm stuck in place. My knees are lodged in spots. It's awful. And we get to like Ely and it's like so bad, so bad. And I'm sweating in the back seat. And I try to take over shotgun, but Levi just sneaks right in and gets it again because I was being boring. So like you're in the back seat sweating. And like, no one wants to see you sitting in the back. So I got put back in the same spot and it was awful and I was dying. So we pull into Las Vegas because we're going to stay there for the first night and we're going to head to Havasu the next night. And we pull into Vegas. We're on the freeway still. And the Green Dragon takes an arrow to the heart. Just kadunk, kadunk. <laughs> and starts screaming this awful noise. So Timmy pulls over, because there's no fucking way he was stopping on the freeway in Vegas. That's a direct quote. And we get into Vegas, and we're on Tropicana, and he pulls into a parking lot, and we park the Green Dragon, and we happen to be in the back parking lot of the Hooters Casino. So we're like, sure, we'll stay at Hooters. And I do not advise this, for starters, okay? So we've got all of our camping gear, because we're supposed to be camping, and we go inside, and we get a room, and we get somehow mistakenly into the freight elevator at Hooters Casino, and the elevator has like seven buttons, and all the other ones are broken off, and there's wires dangling, and there's sparks, and the lights are flickering, and when the elevator starts moving, you can hear the gears grinding, and there's, it's just awful. It's a terrible place. And Hooters Casino is exactly what you would think it would be, right? There's like 60-year-old cocktail waitresses in Vegas walking around in that Hooters outfit, you know, right? Those, those spanks can only hide so much. 
All right, so we get in there, and, and the guys are excited. We're in Vegas. It's, it's Monday night, so they get dressed. They go out. I've got a fever, so I take a bath, and I go to bed. That's Monday. It's Tuesday. We wake up. Get the fuck out of Hooters as soon as we could. Timmy starts calling around Vegas trying to, you know, see what, what he's got. And the summer before, he had blacked out at the Stratosphere Tower and blew a grand at the craps table. So they were like, yes, Mr. O'Donnell, come, Mr. O'Donnell. We'll comp you a suite, Mr. O'Donnell. So we did, and we were in this beautiful suite, and Levi's got a great picture of himself in a bubble bath, and it was wonderful. And I felt a little bit better. So on Tuesday night, I decided to go out with the guys. So we go out to one of those uh, stage shows where all the street performers get a chance to be on stage. So it's like 15 minutes, and it's magicians and comedians and like uh, method actors and dancers and jugglers. And they all get 15 minutes on stage. And it's beautiful, because most of the time, they're just on the sidewalk. So it's like a moment for them to shine. And we all loved it. And we met up with uh, Libby and Pepper, a couple of hot girls from Weezer who were <laughs> on the tail end of a six-day bender in Vegas. And so we caught up there our first night, their last night was wonderful and it was easy. And we sang karaoke on the strip at this bar with all the street performers. And I remember one point Jack, Captain Jack Sparrow, out of character, passed me a joint under the table. It was terrific. <laughs> so that was Tuesday. So Wednesday, we're walking by the stratosphere. We go by the chapel, love, and we're just walking down the street and we're inside one of these little nickel casinos and we're playing roulette. And Justice tells me to bet on black, because you always got to bet on black. He's, he's, a, he's a Justice. All right, so, <laughs> so I bet on black, and I actually win 20 bucks. And I was kind of excited. And then I get a phone call from my mom, and she's already mad at me, because I'm not in Twin Falls digging post holes like I do every fucking spring break. <laughs> and I'm in Vegas with my buddies, and everybody knows about it. And she knows that Tim's dad's coming to get us on Friday, because... We weren't going to pay a mechanic in Vegas because they were going to charge us $6,000 to replace the transmission because everyone in Vegas takes you for a ride. And so they're going to come back up on Friday and pick us up. And we've got the whole thing mapped out. We know we got three days to blow. And I get this phone call from my mom, and she tells me that my grandmother's sick. And she's not going to make it. And I need to come home. And she calls and tries to get a plane ticket, and it's going to be Friday or it's going to be too too expensive, and I tell her I just want to come home. So she gets me a bus pass. And I do not advise the bus pass, the Greyhound station in Las Vegas, just imagine, stop and think about it, the Greyhound station in Las Vegas at 2 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. There's hookers just flaunting their wares, there's drug dealers and drug users, and just a whole bunch of really sad people. You get to that point where just you're so lost in Vegas that you pay for a $45 bus ticket to get the fuck out. And I'm one of those people. And I have all my stuff back in the hotel room. I didn't even go. I just went straight to the terminal. And I've got my backpack on me. And the baggage handler goes through my bag, and he finds my blue scissors. And they're a weapon. And I was like, no, 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 those are art supplies. But he took my blue scissors, and he's just swinging them on his finger as he walks away. And I was like traumatized already and emotional, and I just got on the bus. So we're on the bus, and we're going into Utah, because you have to take the freeway. You can't go the fast way through Ely. And a freak blizzard hits. Freak blizzard, out of nowhere, just hits. It's like this March storm that just came out of nowhere. And it sidelines the bus. The brakes freeze. And you have to stop like 30 times on the bus anyway, everywhere you go. They have to stop at every truck stop along the freeway. And the brakes freeze. And I'm sitting on the back of the bus with all the cool kids, because even on the Greyhound, the cool kids sit in the back of the bus. <laughs> and... 
we're swapping stories and you know talking to each other and this girl finishes a book and I finish a book and we switch books and we just you know that's what you do on the back of the bus <laughs> and we're sitting there chatting and no one's going to sleep and around four o'clock in the morning I get a phone call from my mother and she tells me that my grandmother had passed and I was late too late and the people around me I had told them my story like very vaguely they had no idea why I was on the bus and I told them in that moment that my grandmother died and these perfect strangers just came to me they sat next to me and they reached over the car seat and they put their arms around me and they held me and I just wailed and we get to Salt Lake and we all split they go east to Pennsylvania to New York City to Iowa to wherever their dreams are and I go to Twin Falls <laughs> and but but first, Pocatello. Uh, and I have a three-hour layover in Pocatello. At the bus station in downtown Pocatello, the nearest restaurant's like two miles away. So I have a cigarette and a Mountain Dew. And that's my breakfast. It's terrific. And I catch a shuttle to Burley, and we lose a guy in Burley. I don't know what happened to that guy. He went to the bathroom, and he never came back. So we left him there. Pfft, fuck it. So we get to Twin Falls. Finally, it's 14 hours, my bus trip. And... I get there and my brother and my dad pick me up and my mom tells me that they've decided I'm going to write her obituary and I'm going to deliver her eulogy because I'm the writer in the family and that's just what gets put on you. And so I do it and I write this beautiful thing about my grandmother, how she's a creator and she had beadwork and crochet and she did all these things and I left out all the parts, how she never had a job and she never drove a car and she was a terrific hoarder, just seriously the best. There was a pathway through her house. A, just one. When my mom and I cleaned her house, it took us four and a half years to clean her house. No shit. Um, so we go, and I, and I deliver the eulogy, and I had this awful moment while I was delivering it that I realized this is not the only one I'm going to give. It's not the only one I'm going to write. And I looked around at my loved ones and my far-flung cousins, and I realized I was going to have to write more of these. And after the service, we realized we didn't have enough pallbearers. There's only four real Lepre men left. And so, and one of them's Clyde, and he had a bum shoulder. He played, he hurt himself playing basketball in the Special Olympics. And so we started recruiting people. And so we got Terry, who's a full-blown alcoholic, and he had at least a fifth of vodka in him already. Uh, Benny was my sister's new boyfriend. They've been dating about a month. And then we grabbed Darren, who was my dad's buddy. They used to work together, but he's clearly, clearly methed out. But he read about it in the paper, and he came to be there for my dad. But he's like like 40 pounds lighter than the last time I saw him. He's super strung out. And the seven of us are going to carry my grandma's casket. As soon as the, we get outside, the snow starts coming again. And by the time we get to the, to the site at Sunset Memorial Cemetery, the snow is blowing in horizontal, about 50 miles an hour, a full-on blizzard. And we're carrying this casket, right? And I'm in the front right. My brother, who's like a huge, huge person, he's in the back, back left. And we make eye contact, like we're not going to drop her. And everyone else was in dress shoes and were slipping and sliding, and we came so close. And Terry, half drunk, is like, you know that's Eileen, right? She's just hollering because we're moving around so much. <laughs> and it could have been. And so we ended the service, and my brother says we went to Applebee's. That's disputable. We're not really sure. Um, so a couple days later, I find myself back in Boise, back looking at this project that's just a mess. I don't even want to touch it. But I type it up, put it into an Excel document, I defend my thesis, I graduate, and I'm sitting around trying to think of what to do next. And I 
take my uh, 78 GMC pickup that my parents gave me as a graduation present. My dad had bought it for $200 at a Nickelback concert for my cousin Lance. <laughs> and I drove it to the Home Depot and I got an eight foot birch board, right? Just a big old flat. And I took and screwed it onto the wall in my, my bedroom and I glued that multiplication table right into the front center of it. And I set out on another project to cut up and put up a bunch of useless information, just garbage I'd found on the street, old IDs and concert ticket stubs and a bunch of junk. And I just started gluing it up there and cutting up with scissors. Not good scissors, like shitty little scissors, like little red-handled scissors that are too small for your hand. You're like cramping this, cutting like this, or like this really old pair of brass scissors. I tried to sharpen and that didn't work. And the scissors from my grooming kit, which were really sharp, but they just didn't seem to cut paper right. And everything was like jagged and messy. And I even tried a pocket knife at one point. But I kept on working at it, and I got this project semi-done, not really done, still in Tim's garage. I probably should finish that at some point. It's my antithesis, so I'm probably never going to turn it in. But the point is that I started creating something again, and it was good, and it worked, and it got me out of the funk. And I took something that I loved, and I started over again. And I realized that you got to find things that you love. And if you lose the thing you love, you got to find something else to love, right? You got to find friendships, and you got to find relationships, and you got to find enemies and fucking hecklers to say something weird in the back of the crowd. And you've got to find all these people to amass in your life, or you're never going to find six people to stand beside you at your wedding. You're never going to find two enemies who are going to talk shit about you. And you're never going to find seven random dudes to carry you to your grave. Her name is Patty O'Hara. Patty O'Hara. Wow. Spring 1973. I'm 19 and I'm just almost finishing my first year at the University of Wisconsin Madison. Yeah. Go Badgers. And I'm hanging out at my parents' house and just commenting, musing to no one in particular, you know, I think I'd like to go visit Baltazar. And that's when I heard it, snip. And there was my mother with a virtual, oh, for God's sakes, just do it, pair of scissors, snip. Baltazar was this incredibly handsome, tall, blue-eyed, hot, talented, sexy, <laughs> Oh my God, he was so cute. He looked like Mick Jagger, only without the lips. And maybe not the hair and stuff, but he was just so sexy. He was so European. He was a foreign exchange student from Spain. And I met him three weeks before he was headed back home after spending a year in my little hometown of Monona, Wisconsin. So I had three weeks with Balta. And by the time I met him, Balta was quite fluent in, in English. He knew more words than I did and, and words that I had never heard of. He taught them to me. And he knew some Spanish words like garganta, the way he said it. Yeah, that means throat. Garganta. So sexy. And the way he said my name, Patricia. He was Castilian, right? Every time he said it, I felt like I needed to go to confession, you know, bless me, Father, for I've sinned, Patricia. Oh, my God, it was orgasmic. Okay, so, Baltazar, incredible. And I had three lovely weeks with him, and during that time, I felt like 
I was the only person in his life. And in fact, I was because all of his friends from the year, the school year, had already gone off for their summer jobs, and he was left alone, and he had nothing else to do except hang out with me. But that's okay. I felt special. So when he left, I needed to keep in touch because I knew he needed to keep in touch with me. I was special too, right? So I wrote him letters. Back then, long distance was very expensive. It was unreliable, especially going to Spain. You could hear the ocean over the cables when you called, or your phone would be cut off, and your you know, accent was just quite not working. So I had to use mail, air mail, and I wrote Balta every week, sealed every letter with tears, just tear-soaked, and I waited two months, sometimes three months, for him to reply. I remember on one of his letters at the end, he said, Tal vez que te vea otra vez, Patricia. Oh, my God. I'm just like, putty. Maybe I'll see you someday. Abrazos. Hugs. Baltasar. <laughs> oh. <gasps> he needed me. I knew it. <laughs> and that's when I one day mused out loud that, you know, maybe I'll go visit Baltasar someday. And that's when my mom took out that virtual scissors and cut the virtual umbilical cord that tied us for those 19 years. That, oh, for God's sake, just do it. My mother was the queen of vicarious living, so this is something she was really interested in. Did I, did, did I tell you Balta had blue eyes? If I didn't, I'm going to tell you. If I did, I'll tell you again anyway. He had blue eyes. Oh, my God. So she's just picturing, oh, I could be the grandmother of little blue-eyed bilingual babies. Oh, my God. And, and by the way, he had this great, I mean, the way he did his THs, you know, that sexy lisp thing going, Patricia. Oh, God. Anyway, so she cut the umbilical cord. And the way she did it is she turned around and she told everybody that Patty's going to Spain. My daughter is going to Spain. And then to make sure it was a good, clean cut, she held a surprise going away party for me. <laughs> she invited everyone in Monona, including the mayor. Yes. He was as surprised as I was. So I'm a celebrity. I'm at this party, and people are asking me questions. So, Patty, oh, this is great stuff. We're here for a party. Where are you going? I don't know, Spain, I think. So when are you leaving there, you know? Um, I, I'm not sure. So how long are you going to stay? Oh, I, I, I don't know. Maybe a, a while, I'm sure. So I had to go. Now I got to go. I can't. Can you imagine running into someone in the grocery store a week later and they're going, didn't I go to your goodbye party? It's so awkward. So I applied for a passport. I got to scrounge it up some money for a round-trip ticket to Spain and got $200 in traveler's checks and wrote a letter to Balta saying, hey, good news, I'm coming to visit you. Isn't that great? And I waited for a reply, and I waited. And I waited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And departure date came, and I'm getting in the car with my mom and dad. We're heading for Chicago. It's time to leave, and I still haven't heard from Balta, but that's okay. You know, guys, they just forget, you know. I'll just go there, and I'll find him in, in Spain. <laughs> so my parents walk me to the gate. In, in those days, you could. You could walk someone to the gate. They kind of nudge me onto the jetway, 
And what I didn't know is that, in fact, my dad had followed me. I learned this 30 years later. He followed me down the jetway, and a flight attendant turned him around, and they shut the door behind me. Did I mention, by the way, that I'd never been in an airplane before? <laughs> what were we all thinking? So I land in Madrid by myself. I find a pension smart enough to find one near this telephone station because in, in Spain there aren't phones. They aren't really, they weren't at the time very good. They weren't useful. So you, I would make trips every day. For five days I went back and forth from the pension to the telephone station, back and forth, trying to reach Baltazar. I assured my parents, listen, I can get a hold of him. It'll be long distance in Spain. It'll be easy. I'll call him. He'll come down from northern Spain, little mining town, and he'll pick me up. He'll pick me up. It's okay. Well, two days into this, I called my parents. It's three in the morning for them. Now, I, again, I didn't know about international time stuff. I'm thinking it's also one o'clock for them. I was so homesick. I can't I couldn't. I couldn't even speak. Three in the morning, and they're both on the phone. My mother's rolled, rolled. It's our daughter. Talk to her. And he's just, she's just so panicked. I couldn't say anything. I had to hang up. My time was up, so that was it. Yes. God, I think back on this. If my son did this. But I kept on trying to reach Balta. Tried and tried. Five days later. I said, you know what, this is enough. I've had enough of this. I'm laying down the law here. I sent him a telegram. Uh -huh. I said, okay, I need to hear from you before tomorrow or I'm, I'm going back home. Hey, you're lost. I'm packing my American tourister mustard suitcase and I'm heading back, back to Monona, Wisconsin. What's it gonna be? Well, by golly, the next day I got a phone call at the pension. It was Balta. He gave me directions to his little town in northern Spain by the slowest train. That was kind of odd. And eight hours later, I arrived. At that time that I met Balta's parents, Benjamin and Emilia, quite elderly, very old in fact, worn, time-worn. The two of them had lived through the Spanish Civil War. They were tired. They were done. Neither of them spoke any English. He also introduced me to his little sister, Covadonga, his younger sister, who was also living at home. But you know what? It was OK. I, I, they didn't seem to quite know why I was there still. <laughs> you know, they, 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 howdy, OK, looking at Balta. He wasn't sure either, I think. He was like, OK. So, um, but that's OK. I speak Spanish. I had four years in high school. We're good. <laughs> I'm gonna, they're gonna love me. I'm gonna endear myself to them. Let me tell you how one of the more memorable conversations, remember this is decades ago, here's how it went. Here's Amelia, his mother. Patricia, ¿quieres un poco de pan? It's like real loud so I can hear and understand her, right? It's like, no, gracias. Because they have that Castilian accent, I hadn't conquered it yet. No, gracias. I didn't want Balta to think I ate bread, for God's sake. Oh, pig. No. Estoy llena, I said. I'm full. I thought I said. But there was silence. And Balta turned to me, and he said, you know, you have just told my family you are knocked up. <laughs> oh, my God. 
oh my God, I'm so sorry, I'm so embarrassed. I didn't even know what knocked up meant, okay? I just knew that it wasn't right because everybody was real quiet and Balta didn't like it. So I'm like, okay, all right, oh, lo siento, estoy muy embarazada. I said, I'm so, uh, I'm so embarrassed, not. Balta nudges me, okay, now you just told my parents, you are very pregnant. Now remember, they didn't know why I was there, but they're starting to get a little suspicious. So in order to get away from there, I'm thinking, okay, Patty, get away from the table, break away from the table. Okay, lo siento. Ah, tengo que ducharme. I have to go take a shower. Yeah, no, no. Baltus said, okay, you just go have a good douche. That was the first night. There were many more nights like that. I'll bring up a couple more in the interest of time. Another time, I'm with his family. It's a couple weeks down the road now. I'm still there. I can't believe that wasn't the Last Supper. We're down, we're walking, we're headed for the beach. Extended family, his abuelita is there, his nephew, three-year-old Felix Manuel, his brothers, sisters, fiancés, mother, father, everybody. And we've got tortilla packed. We're going to go to the beach, have a good time. And in the spirit of all this, I turn to Felix Manuel and I say, hey, Dame una bolsita de cacahuetes. I want a little bag of peanuts. What do you say, Felix? He screamed and ran to his mother, Tere. Oh, mamá, he said. Now, he said this in Spanish. Patricia asked me for a bag of cow shit. He said it real loud. His mother, I, no, I didn't say cow shit. Cacahuetes, peanuts, cacahuetes. I don't know. I don't know how to say cow shit. But he said it. In Spanish, and his mother didn't like that, so whap upside the head. Felix Manuel, que calla la boca. His father is, te tiro por la ventana. I'm going to throw you out the window. His grandmother is, oh, la paz de Dios. Everybody's getting all panicked. His brother Javier is separating us. And I'm like, no, I just want peanuts. That's all. It's just, there's chaos. I never did get the peanuts either. I think it's like uh, vaca de caca, maybe, cow shit. I don't know. But I didn't say that anyway. Another time, much more subdued, I'm having a conversation. It's about four weeks into my little visit, by the way. Time is passing. I'm still there. I say to his, his mother, Senora Amelia, I, I needed to find a wastebasket. I couldn't, in all the time I was there, find a wastebasket. And I didn't bring a Spanish dictionary. That would have been brilliant, right? So I didn't know how to say basura or waste can or whatever, but I noticed that the family would deposit little scraps of garbage and trash and stuff in the stove in the kitchen. They had a coal-burning stove, and that's how they cooked their food on this coal, but it seems like that was the tinder, their little garbage, their little pieces of paper and letters and scraps. So I did that too. I learned. I did it kind of secretly, but that's where I put my garbage because there was nowhere else to put it. Except, you know, there's some things you don't want to burn. Well, it's okay. It, it, we're talking hair here, okay. I, I had accumulated this big hairball of stuff because where do you put it? And I was like, oh, God, i got to get rid of this. So I approached his mother, and it's like, um, Senora, lo siento, I'm sorry. Uh, but I have, um, tengo pelo en mi peine. And I want to throw it away. I want to throw it away. But I didn't say hair in my comb, which is peine. Yeah, yeah, where do I throw the hair on my penis, I said. <laughs> I want to toss it, and I'm sorry, but I need to toss that. And I don't even have a penis. I don't. 
I still have that hairball because she couldn't tell me. She didn't know anyway. It's a souvenir in my scrapbook. Big old wad of hair. Reminds me of that day. And there were many more of those things in the interest of time. I did learn to dream. I started to dream in Spanish. I was there that long. One night I woke up. I beat you. I beat you, I said. I was pointing to the wall. I know this because his sister, Covadonga, woke me up, shook me. Levantate, Patricia. Wake up, wake up. And he was saying, I I beat you. No, no, Patricia, don't say that. I was trying to tell her there was a bug on the wall. But in that context, with the lights out in a bedroom and all is quiet in the house, it was as good as saying, there's a dick, there's a dick. (laughs) She knew the word dick. You know, she wasn't telling me stuff, but she came up with some pretty interesting words. So I needed to, they kept me anyway. We still loved each other. The whole family embraced me in spite of these things. I got to do so many wonderful things with that family. I went to a wedding of his older sister. I went to a baptism, and we celebrated Balta's 20th birthday, and then eventually mine there. We had, yeah, uh, yeah, it was a long time. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's a little awkward, isn't it? I'm a little uncomfortable thinking how long I did this. Nobody's going to invite me to their house anymore. But wonderful cultural things. I learned how to drive a stick shift in, in the Pyrenees Mountains. It was a Citroen. Abalta's bigger brother, big brother, Javier, had a Citroen, and he taught me how to drive in the Pyrenees, a stick in Spanish. A lot of swear words in there, like, you know, I'll throw you out the window and stuff. But I learned. I did it. At one point, I commented how the trucks would, I was feeling really pretty bold, like, I got this now. I'm in fourth gear, and we're just moving along. And I commented that the trucks really go fast in Spain, but camion and prostitute are, truck and prostitute, very close in sound. Yeah, so anyway, it's like turning to the person next to you and going, the prostitutes are really fast in Spain, you know? It's like, whoa, how do you know that? I survived. The family continued to embrace me. I did offer to go home. No, no, Patricia, you should stay, they said. Stay, it's okay. I noticed... Over time, though, that Balta stopped talking to me (laughs) and eventually didn't at all, but the family talked more and I learned more and they learned a lot. I taught them words like like knocked up and, and dick and, you know, they learned a lot from me. Very important words. So it was a very mutual thing, but Balta stopped until one day he broke the silence and he said, Patricia, I have something to tell you. In fact, I am seeing someone, and I have been since I left Monona, Wisconsin a year ago. Her name is Regina. And he said, and by the way, the day you got that uh, the phone call from me, the day you sent the telegram, I actually received a, a letter from the American embassy in Madrid here at my parents' house, and that's what prompted me to call you because... They were wondering about the whereabouts of Patricia Ann Forseth from Monona, Wisconsin, and is she in your care? So I thought I should follow up, and I called you. Here I thought he wanted to get a hold of me. He just wanted to stay out of prison, yeah. So there it was again, that big old snip. That cord was cut. Now it was time to go home. I kind of, yeah, yeah. His parents figured out by then why I was there and um, that it was time. But, oh, God, what a wonderful adventure. I did, I headed home. They all waved me, vaya con Dios, with the emphasis on vaya, go, go. But <laughs> not really. I just picture that. I'm sure they did. 
I went home and uh, got back to O'Hare. My parents were there to pick me up. Daniel was playing on the radio as we drove from Chicago to Madison. And when Blue Spanish Eyes came on, my mother cranked it up, and but she knew that chord was cut. It's okay. Three years passed, and I was thinking about school now. I'm considering graduate school, but I'm also feeling that sense that there's so many of these virtual umbilical cords. Just I'm getting all tangled up again. Oh, here I go again. I'm, I'm, you know, tethered to stuff. So by golly, I stood up and I said, to no one in particular, no one, I said, so mom, I'm thinking maybe I'll go to school in Sweden. Yeah, I knew what I was doing. <laughs> Only this time, I had the scissors. Snip. <laughs> our final featured storyteller for tonight is Peter Young. Is that your name? Yes. So just for the record, I'm only doing this for the free dildo. So it's September of 2004, and I'm 14 years old. I'm the kind of kid who would take a pair of scissors and cut a dreadlock out of my best friend's hair and then sew it into my own greasy locks, which at this point are well past my shoulders. I have a scraggly beard. I'm not a huge fan of showering or going to high school. And this particular Friday afternoon, I've decided that I'm going to skip class in order to attend an anti-war protest in Salt Lake City where George Bush is speaking. <laughs> and while I'm there, I notice there's this sort of group of police in riot gear that are meandering through the crowd. One of them is holding a video camera on a stick. And he's just videotaping everybody in attendance in case something illegal happens, then he will have footage of that event. And I think it's going to be really funny if I take the flag I'm holding and just sort of drape the cloth over the lens of his camera. I'm holding this 10-foot long PVC pole with a flag hanging from it that has a peace sign painted on it, ironically. And I, I lower the cloth down in front of the lens. And before I even get a chance to grin how clever I am and funny I am, then I feel the large, strong, gloved hands of several riot police grabbing me and pulling me out of the crowd. And the next thing I know, that I'm on the ground and my hands are behind my back and I feel myself being lifted up from my knees by the handcuffs that are wrapped around my scrawny 14-year-old wrists. And then I'm, I'm plopped down inside of a paddy wagon, this big steel box with wheels that belongs to the police department. So I'm sitting there contemplating my, my decisions for the day. <laughs> and while I, <laughs> while I was being arrested, then my good friend Davis, another very forward-thinking 14-year-old boy, <laughs> decided that it was a really good idea to grab me and try to unarrest me, in his words, <laughs> by, by pulling on my body and screaming, get the fuck off him, pigs. <laughs> and this, this strategy, if you ever consider employing it, is not effective. So Davis was immediately tackled by a 250-pound African-American police officer 
and his baggy uh, camouflage pants were partially pulled down as they arrested him. So I shouldn't be surprised when a few minutes later I'm sitting in the paddy wagon and the door swings open and my good friend is then seated next to me. <laughs> and we're sitting there silently and then we hear the two police officers in the front of the vehicle. One of them says to the other, do you think that we should just take these guys in or should we try to fill it up? And I say, you guys should definitely try to fill it up. We need company. <laughs> And they did not think that that was funny. So they put, us, they put us in separate police cars and then they drove us separately to the Salt Lake City Juvenile Detention Center, about 40 minutes away. And the, the police officer who took me was very nice and he was very reassuring. He said, you'll just be in here a few hours until your parents can come and get you, no big deal. So I'm thinking, okay, this sucks, but whatever. Checking into jail is a lot like checking into a medical office for a doctor's appointment, except that the receptionist is totally unconcerned with customer service. <laughs> so this, this woman very curtly checks me in and gets all my demographics, and then a man emerges from within the jail who's sort of like a scrawny, sunken-eyed, younger version of Louis C.K. He's this red-haired man. And he, he says, come with me, takes me back to a bathroom inside of the jail, and then he closes the door behind him and he says, take off all your clothes. So I sort of naively strip down to my boxers. I'm wearing my favorite pair of macaroni colored boxer shorts with bicycles printed on them. And I look at him like, okay, I'm done. What, what next? And he says, no, you need to take off your underwear and you need to squat and cough. So I look at him and I look at the floor and I take off my underwear and I squat and I cough. And that's when I realize how, how thick the air is with the smell of piss and bleach. And um, anywho, so I, I throw all of my clothing into this garbage bag that he's holding out for me. He closes the garbage bag, and as he's walking out of the room, then he tosses me a pair of beige scrubs, and he says, put this on, and the door closes. I don't have time to say, no, you don't understand. I'm only going to be here a few hours until my parents can come get me. So I put on the uniform anyway, and he takes me down to the cell block that I'll be staying. There's a row of about 20... Uh, steel doors that are basically, they look like a fire door inside of a hospital. There's one small window on each one that has a flap on the outside so they can keep an eye on you. And I'm introduced to the person that will be supervising me. I'm told what I'm being charged with and it's assaulting two police officers with a weapon. <laughs> and I'm a little surprised. <clears throat> and I start feeling queasy. They give me a phone. They say, you have two minutes to call your mom. I call her and I explain the situation as best I can, but I can barely get the words out. I feel so ashamed and so embarrassed and then just very, very concerned. My mom cries and they take the phone away and then they take me to my cell. They open the door, it's this steel door, and inside there are two large cement rectangles, one in each corner with a sort of thin foam mattress, one on top of each, and the mattress is like this vinyl covered pad that has no sheet on it and on each pad is a teenage boy. And I'm thinking, this seems a little crowded in here. And they say, well, we don't have enough room for you to have a bed, so you're going to be sleeping on this pad in between them on the floor. And then I start to explain again, oh, you don't understand. I'm going to be picked up by my parents in a couple of hours, so I don't need a bed. And then the guy says to me, uh, there are no judges available this weekend. You will be here for three days until a verdict can be reached on Monday. And he closes the steel door, and I hear it lock behind him as he walks away. And uh, so I stand there again for a moment, contemplating my decisions for the day. <clears throat> my cellmates are a 15-year-old Hispanic boy who claims to be a member of the Crips. I'm not sure if there are Crips in Salt Lake City. 
And then this 17-year-old sort of pale, doughy boy who is like a wannabe Italian mafioso who has his hair slicked back with just his own grease and water from the dripping sink in the corner. Um, so we hang out, and then they let us... <laughs> we, have a, we have a lot in common. And they, uh, they let us out for dinner, and at dinner all the other cellmates want to know who the new kid is, and they ask me what I'm in for. I tell them, and they say, why did you assault two police officers? And I say, well, I didn't. And they all laugh, because of course everybody is innocent. And one of them, the kid sitting next to me, he says, you know, you might be in here for a while. And I say, oh, you mean like three days? And he goes, no, the, the last kid I know who had that charge, well, was actually just assaulting one officer, he got six months. So I'm, I'm thinking, I wonder what's going to happen if I miss a year of high school. How could I keep my life on track after that? So that night I don't sleep very well. I remember laying on the mattress on the floor and my skin is sticking to it. I'm sweaty and I just can't sleep and I'm listening to the sound of the stainless steel faucet in the corner dripping and staring at the stainless steel mirror on the wall that's all scratched up from different gang signs. Sunday, or uh, excuse me, Saturday, then I wake up, we have breakfast, and they let us outside to go and have recess. And <laughs> there, there is recess in jail, thankfully. So most of the kids are playing football, and it's sort of a small field, and it's surrounded by this chain link fence. The chain link fence is about 20 feet high, and then there's a four-foot chain link overhang at the top of that. And then the overhang at the end has a coil of razor wire, and this whole place is enclosed by that. And I'm standing there watching everybody play football, and I'm, I'm just staring at the fence, and I'm thinking, I wonder if I could nonchalantly walk over to the fence and then just scramble up as quickly as I can, maybe get cut up a little bit and fall down to the other side, run to the river and hide in the bushes. Maybe I can get away, and I won't have to be here for six months. Um, very forward thinking at the time. But I, I did not do that. <laughs> and so they let us back inside. We have dinner afterwards. My, my cellmate, the slicked back hair guy, says, I'm really excited because tomorrow Stacy is supervising us. And I say, well, why is it exciting that Stacy would be here? And he goes very nonchalantly, well, Stacy and I used to fuck back out on the outside. <laughs> I don't believe him. I think that he's just, that he's just full of it. Um, and I write it off, I don't think much of it. Spend another night on the sweaty, sticky mattress, and then Sunday morning we wake up and we're brought outside to have roll call. And this woman is there, a woman in her early 30s, wearing a lot of makeup, her name is Stacy. She calls roll and goes down the list of people very quickly, um, and then she gets to his name and, and she stops and she smiles and she says, hi, Anthony. <laughs> There's about a three-second pause where he just has the biggest grin I've ever seen. And then she finishes calling roll, and I feel like, I can't believe that I'm in here and that I'm stuck in here with you assholes. <laughs> um, later on in the day, then, I'm allowed to go and check out a book from the jail library. I picked Lord of the Flies. And I feel, I feel more so than ever that I identify with the characters in that story because... It's a story about a bunch of young boys trapped on this desert island who have no way out and no timeline of when they're getting out. And maybe their boat is coming in a few hours, maybe it's coming in a few days, maybe it's coming in several months or more. And I, I keep thinking, when is my boat coming? And I have no idea. I feel very, I feel very queasy with, with anxiety at that thought, and I just keep trying to turn the pages to keep my mind off of that. 
on Monday, then I'm allowed to uh, get ready to go to basically Skype court. Uh, the kids in the juvie, instead of going to the courthouse, which would be logistically challenging, they just have everybody uh, see a judge on a television screen. And there, there's hundreds of kids in this facility, and so there's around 20 or 30 that are going to see a judge that day. And everybody is from different cell blocks, and so we're all wearing different colored uniforms. Uh, there's beige and brown, navy, purple, orange. And when they, they line us up, then they chain our wrists together and our ankles together. And then my wrists are also chained to the waist of the person in front of me. And we're marched on this long concrete hallway. And I remember thinking, we look like this very lame, dull-colored rainbow chain gang, <laughs> sadly marching towards Skype court. And I'm seated in the waiting room, which is a big concrete room with a cement bench surrounding the whole parameter. And while I'm sitting there, then Davis, my friend, is brought in and plopped next to me. And I perk up, because I almost forgot that he existed. <laughs> like, you've been in here too, and you've had your own unique experience. But <laughs> we're not allowed to talk, so I don't ask him. I just, I'm really happy to see him now. And uh, eventually, then, it's my turn to sit in front of the little webcam, and I see the judge on the television screen that don't really ask me much, except if I'm pleading guilty or not guilty. Of course, I'm pleading not guilty. And I can see my family in the bottom right corner. I see my, my father, my mother, my sister, and then this lawyer. And um, the lawyer gets me out. He gets me released to my parents' custody until a verdict will be reached. And uh, it takes about an hour for my mom and my sister to come and pick me up at the jail. And when they arrive, then I remember running outside and hugging both of them, and it's a sunny day. I ran over to my mother's Honda Civic and just laid on the hood of the car and just hugged the car. And I could feel the warmth that it had been soaking up in the afternoon while we were in court. And I feel this incredible sense of relief and freedom. And I look back as we're leaving the parking lot, I look back at the giant chain link fence with a razor wire, and, and I'm really happy that I didn't try to climb over it. <laughs> Um, so over the next several months, then the Salt Lake Police Department continued to urge me to plead guilty, saying that they had definitive evidence that, that I was, and I continued to plead not guilty until all charges were dropped and I was found not guilty on all counts. Um, and uh, <laughs> lucky. And I, I think that what I learned from the experience was that I'm an incredibly lucky and privileged son of a bitch, and that. Even if I think it's going to be really funny, I probably shouldn't play pranks on police in riot gear. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks for listening. Story Story Late Night is brought to you by our story party. Board members Bob Haycock, Jody Eichelberger, Amy Moran, Hannah Schaefer, Karis Kimball, Karen Moore, and Elizabeth McKenna. Volunteer coordinator Ginny Estes, and yours truly, Jessica Holmes. The late night season is brought to you with generous support from the iconic Overnight Team Shop. Scissors was made possible with the support of the modern hotel and bar, where bodies in motion come to rest. Rawr. Along with the big time support of the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. Props to the DJ magic of Stardust Lounge, the podcast production of Stephen Baldessari, the late night theme song by Ned Evett, and the show photography by Paul Budge. Support this storied program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at storystorynight.org or on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter at Story Story Night. <laughs>